0: Please be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. So we continue in a series we began a few weeks ago in the seven churches of Revelation. We titled the series, Finding Ourselves in the Letters to the Churches in Revelation. The reason that it's titled that way is because while these letters were written to specific churches uh, in what is now present-day Turkey, um, churches are composed of individual believers. And so the patterns that we see in the church, they're certainly appropriate. All the instructions, whether they are encouragements or corrections that are written to the church, certainly appropriate for us to be applying to our church and the way that we live our corporate lives together. But because the church is composed of individual believers, we also look at the instructions, the corrections and the encouragements and apply them to our lives where it is necessary. The question is not only where or if we will find ourselves in each of these letters, but in what way? And how often do we find ourselves in these letters? And so we study this for very personal reasons. So we come to our text this morning. We are in our third letter, the letter to the church in Pergamum. Begin our reading in verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding from his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, as we come this morning to your word, we do pray that you would speak to us. You have promised that you would. We've experienced it in the past. We are in need of it again. For, Lord, we can study but we may not see, apart from your Spirit, being at work within us. But we come clinging to the promise that you have made, that your word will always produce the fruit that you intend. And we pray that your word would not only inform our minds, but it would expose our our souls, both for encouragement and for correction, that we might be formed by your word more and more to be like Christ. Father, we pray that we would be able to hear your voice even through these words and even through my words, that we would know that this is a time committed to worship, not only because we have made the effort to study, but because you speak to us as the living and true God. Bless us in this time, we pray, O oh Lord, in the name of Christ, who is the Word incarnated. Amen. They never saw it coming. What would probably be widely regarded as one of the greatest failures of human judgment in all of history, the great Aztec warrior king, Montezuma, turned over his entire empire to the Spanish explorer, Hernando de de Cortes, and he did so without one ounce of effort in resistance to the Spanish takeover of their society the reason he did so was that Montezuma mistook Cortes as a returning lost god. Now, as foolish as that is, and there's no way around the foolishness of of his judgment, he did have some help in his misunderstanding. Among the Spanish uh, that came with them, or among the the Spanish uh, soldiers uh, that that came uh, to the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico was a young woman, a young Aztec woman by uh, the name of Dona Marina. She had been taken as a slave when she was a teenager and hadn't been seen in a number of years. Having been sold enslaved first in Portugal and then later to the Spaniards, she was now on the ship being returned to her people and then served as an interpreter so that the Spanish would be able to speak with the Aztecs. And so she was the go-between between... Cortez and uh, Montezuma, being able to tell Montezuma everything Cortez wanted to communicate and, to resp- uh, and Montezuma's response back to Cortez. What was not known to the Aztec people, though, is that this young woman was coming not as a slave being returned to her people, but as the mistress of Cortez with a greater love for her affair than she had for her own people. And so she helped Cortez in the miscommunication of his intentions and of who he was, and helped also in the overthrow of her own people, a betrayal uh, that Montezuma perhaps should have seen coming. Uh, But she also was aware of their superstitions and their traditions and played right into them and allowing Cortez to play right into those so that he was presented as a returning lost god. Montezuma turned over everything in his reign to the people. Three days after he turned over the empire to the Spanish, uh, then he himself and all of his officers were arrested and thrown in jail. And within one year of the takeover, every Aztec leader, every Aztec warrior had been put to death without one bit of resistance. Now, I share this story because it illustrates a very important reality. The enemy is always most dangerous when he is least detected. In this particular case, the enemy came and also came wearing the face of someone who was a brother, or in this case, a sister, one who would ostensibly love and love the people that she was speaking to, and then those who were her friends would obviously be friends of her people because they were returning her. But as history points out, that was not the case But the enemy is always most dangerous when least detected, whether it's through that act of betrayal or any act of betrayal or just any circumstance where we are dull to the signs of potential danger that are around us. And here in our text, we are reminded that we do have an enemy. There is a a living, real entity that in our culture and in many cultures is ignored, but nevertheless is a very real entity who hates us, wants to do ill to us because he hates God and therefore hating God, he hates what God loves, which is people created after his own image. and He hates with a desire to bring pain to the God who is a God of tremendous love. We see him referred to here in this text in verse 13 where Jesus, as he's speaking, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And then later on he's talking about, uh, again, knowing that Satan... Uh, dwells uh, in their city. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that means necessarily, but we know that Satan is being referred to, as being alluded to, is present. I don't think that it means that Satan actually, you know, built a capital building and in the center there he put a throne and he lives there and occasionally ventures out into other cities. We're talking about it more metaphorical that the culture that was there was anti-God. It was set up in a way that was contrary to God and contrary to God's way and particularly contrary to God as He's expressed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. But even as the implication of this text is that we have a very real enemy, we also need to look at this text with the understanding that he's not the primary focus of this particular text. He is alluded to. He is a, more than assumed because it, it's spoken of that he has a, a throne, that he dwells within the city. But it's not really dealing with him as a person, but more his antics and his ways. In other words, it's not about the person of Satan, the enemy of God's people and the enemy of God, but it's about the spiritual warfare that is a very also very real thing that we need to be aware of at all times because when we are not aware of spiritual warfare, then the enemy is more dangerous because he is lesser detected. Now throughout the book of Revelation we see that the enemy has a number of weapons in his arsenal and they're oftentimes they're refle- reflected in, in images. Again, These images are, uh, are the, the, arse- uh, the, the weapons are seen throughout all of the scripture, but the images reflected in, in the book of Revelation Um, help us to get an idea of of how he he functions. In one sense, there's not a whole lot of different ways that that he approaches things because they fall into just a couple of different categories. One is represented by the image of the beast, which is perhaps one of the most popular images that people remember from this weird book of Revelation, this beast that comes and and does some awful, torturous things. And the beast represents the persecution, the the outright onslaught that has been perpetrated against God's people from nearly the very beginning. It hasn't ceased. Now, we end up living in a culture that we do not experience that. But the fact that we don't experience it, and that we don't see it, doesn't mean that it's not happening. In fact, is, very few people seem to be aware of the fact that during the 20th century, there were more people martyred for the sake of the name of Christ than there had been in the, all the 19th centuries together, combined. It hasn't ended. We see tidbits in the news even today of the continual oppression, targeting, and killing of Christians, whether it's a bombing in a mall targeting those who are Christians, whether it's chemical warfare amongst Christians who are in border. It's important that we understand that the spiritual warfare continues, even the beast who is at work, even today, bringing persecution as he has been from the very beginning. Another image we see is that of a a false prophet, which simply is a false teacher. Not everybody is a prophet, whether they come presenting themselves as a prophet or not as in here's what's going to happen, but the one who teaches and teaches about God and teaches about God wrongly, particularly those who don't care that they are teaching wrongly, but they are distorting people's understanding of who God is, what God expects, what God demands, and even more importantly, what God has done to demonstrate his full character to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Because when we don't think right about who God is and what God has done, then our minds cannot possibly be formed to what God has done, conformed to what, the way he thinks, and then our lives lived out accordingly. And so the false teachers, who are very present, are also dangerous, and we see them reflected throughout all of the scriptures and, and imagery throughout the book of Revelation. And then the third image that we see prominent in the book of Revelation is that of a prostitute. Not only in the book of Revelation, we see her in the book of Proverbs and dealing with the contrary to wisdom, but the book of Proverbs, the prostitute in the scripture, really reflects the seduction that takes place as a means of spiritual warfare to separate God's people from God or from the blessings that God has promised and has worked out for us. What we may not think is that the most effective of these means is almost always seduction. Far more than persecution. I had the opportunity a few years ago to meet and have breakfast with a man who uh, was from a country that is in the midst of persecution. He was traveling around visiting a number of different churches speaking to not only inform uh, the believers here in the States about what was going on in his country but even more so of how God has been faithful to his people despite the fact that they have been experiencing persecution and to strengthen and encourage and build up the believers here in this country. One of the things that he said was amazing to uh, to me. He said that 95% of the believers who experience persecution pass the test. 95% of the believers who experience seduction of their faith fail the test. Now, I don't know if his statistics were accurate, but his point, I think, is is accurate, is is, is very clear, is that when persecution comes, it's a very clear thing, and the believers we're seeing around the world, knowing that they have received Christ at the possibility of their own lives, they stand firm in the face of opposition. It's a very clear opponent, and they make a decision when persecution comes their way. But those of us, particularly in our culture, who never have had to experience real persecution. And despite what we seem to be worried about today, there is no real persecution on the horizon. We are perhaps in danger of losing our privileged position in society, but losing privilege is not the same as persecution. But we will do anything we can to cling to comfort and to position, and and therefore, anything that threatens that we're willing to find ways around until we are seduced away, not by the persecution itself, but by things that we are offered, things of comfort. that are not necessarily in the place of our God, but that we embrace alongside our God. And the message that Jesus gave to the church in Pergamum is to be very aware of the presence and the danger of the seduction of our faith. And it's a message that's not only pertinent to that particular church, it's a message that is very pertinent to those of us who are living in this day, in this culture, in the Western world, the United States, an American evangelical church. We need to be very aware of the dangers of seduction. Now, Pergamum itself, I acknowledge it's kind of a a strange name. I can't read, and even as I'm speaking it during this message... It sounds to me like a name made up by C.S. Lewis for Narnia or something, just kind of one of those weird-sounding names. The Pergamum was quite a city in antiquity. It was powerful. It was a favored destination for vacation and sojourners. People saved in order to go. Their life almost seemed incomplete without having been able to take a vacation time to go to Pergamum. But despite the affluence and the prestige that it had, it's probably not on any of your vacation lists, and you'll never see it featured on the Travel Channel. And the primary reason for that is it doesn't exist anymore. But in its day, it was something to behold. Vegas, Atlantic City, New Orleans, San Francisco had nothing on this city. Any of the reasons that people would travel to those cities, they had that in Pergamum. It was a center of cultic practice, particularly prostitution, cultic practices. It was a center of gambling. It was a center of architectural beauty. It was a, you name it, whatever would draw people there, people would travel far and wide to Pergamum in order to visit. Now, the name Pergamum itself literally means thoroughly married. But it's not speaking so much of a, a quality as it is of a, of a quantity. In other words, we get the gamos from the Pergamum as the, the word referring to married. But rather than monogamy, one, it's polygamous, many. But Pergamum just means thoroughly married and it's talking about somebody who so enjoys marriage that they do it over and over and over again. And so they're thoroughly married, at least in, in the way that the culture was was expressing itself. And marriage is a good illustration that we need to keep in our mind as we understand the message that Jesus is giving to this particular church. Both the intensity and the severity and, and, his, and his words, his passion, because understanding that illustration helps us to understand both what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is promising. Marriage is good also because even in our own culture we see the, the, the institution of marriage and we have different thoughts about it. In other words, if you think about a wedding, it's a day, and you go to a wedding, somebody invites you to come to the wedding, you go and it's a day of so much promise, often so much beauty. And yet I doubt that there's anybody here who doesn't know somebody who at some point or another, the luster has, uh, has gone from their marriage, very few seem to finish well. And, and fewer, and some don't even finish at all. And part of the reason is in, in our culture is because we've given ourselves to so many different things. Before, we bring baggage into our marriages. I, I find it illustrated in a way without belittling, but in the TV show The Bachelorette. Again, as a qualifier as I've never seen it. I don't plan on seeing it. I've seen snip, snapshots of it. I haven't found a good book or a bad book that I wouldn't rather watch. But I understand there's other things that, uh, that uh, that's just my tastes. But as I understand, the the premise of of the show is that usually the bachelorette for a woman and there's another bachelor for a guy, but we'll just take the woman for a moment. There's dozens of guys that begin the show, and this one woman is to pick her husband from among those dozens of guys. Now, it's easy to cut down early on because some of them are just dopes, and there's, you know, that's not a problem. But, you know, as they cut, 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 she comes away with three or four who seem to be in competition for her affections. She's attracted to each one of them for different things. They all bring strengths of their character or their appearance or something that, is, that she's attracted to. And she spends time with each of them and then has to decide between them. And ultimately, as she comes, finishes and makes the one choice, she chooses the one from among the, the few. But the problem is she has already experienced, already, in a sense, given herself to several. And she comes in choosing one, even though she misses the characteristics of the other. And So she comes in with divided affections. Now, in some cases, she's able to get past that, and perhaps they go on and have very happy and healthy marriages. But in many cases, it's an illustration and we, we can see from the beginning. This is a shipwreck. It's a ship that's never going to make it because they're not focused. They're not on course. There's a number of things that are going to compete. And so when marriage becomes difficult, as it inevitably will, she already has other things that she can, her affections or can be reminded uh, have been given to somebody else. And that begins to weaken the relationship as a whole. It's a recipe for disaster. But as I read this letter, I'm reminded that Jesus seems to be saying here, as we see elsewhere in Scripture, He says, The church and we believers often have more in common with the bachelorette than we would like to admit. We come into the relationship with Christ, but we already have previous experience, or there are experiences that are all around us that have attractive qualities to us. We're drawn by the greatest promise of the, that we find in Christ, whether it is the understanding that our sins are forgiven or the promises of what will be laying ahead for us if we are, remain faithful uh, and we belong to Christ, His promise to love us, to never forsake us, the promise to empower us, the beautiful promises of the gospel. And yet life is not smooth sailing. And at times we can grow weary, we can grow frustrated, thinking that although God has promised certain things, there's got to be something else. We don't chuck the marriage. But our affections can easily become divided. We look elsewhere. And we find fulfillment elsewhere. As to a belie- people, a group of people... Believers who are experiencing that same mindset, one that I think we can recognize. Jesus opens this letter introducing himself as the one who has a sharp, two edged sword. When he comes wielding his sword, and that's the first thing that he wants them to see, it's not, hey, I have a cool sword, it is a warning. The 2 edge says that it cuts no matter what direction. There is no escaping the potential. It, it, Jesus introducing himself says, look, this is a serious issue. Why? Because he is the bridegroom and we are, the believers are the bride. And he takes seriously the marriage that he has called, invited us into, the vows that we took that we would belong to him and, and no other. And He doesn't look the other way when our affections begin to wander and be given to others. When we're seduced. He's reminding them that it's serious. He's reminding believers that when we make that commitment, we continue to keep that commitment and that commitment above all other things. And everything else that we experience comes as a provision from him that only makes us more committed to him because we realize we find our greatest joy and fulfillment in him. Because of the picture that we have here of the relationship of marriage that is beginning to stray, I think there's a couple of principles that we need to consider that Jesus is speaking to the church here. The first one would be this, is that we need to detect the danger of seduction. Now, obviously, one of the great dangers and challenges to the Christians living in Pergamum is the environment in which they live. Jesus says, look, I know where you live. And so he's pointing out the conditions of the place where they live. The place where you live is the place where Satan has his throne. Again, I don't know exactly what that means. It's it's metaphorical. I know it can't be good. He elaborates a little bit. He says, you know, you've experienced persecution. People that were intent on eradicating believers, they came, they killed some of the people that you loved, and you've experienced that, and that would be a pretty good indication that the place where they lived is not friendly to those who hold to the faith. But Jesus says there's something that came beautiful out of that. He says, you know, I know you love me because you withstood that full frontal attack. I mean, when you were threatened with your lives, you stood firm and you declared your love for me and you remained faithful. And so that's evidence that you love me. Not that I doubted it before, but you know that you love me. But then Jesus says, but I know that you love me, but something else has your heart as well. And See, the place where they lived is the evidence of the danger of the external circumstances, the external concern. But Jesus is pointing out something else as well in this that we need to be aware of because the dangers of seduction are not just in the environment in which we live, but something else has their heart. That's not the environment. That is them. There is an internal issue, danger as well, an internal challenge that we as believers face. And he gives two illustrations, two examples that I won't go and have time to go into detail about them, but he uses a re- reference to an Old Testament prophet named Balaam. You can find in the book of Numbers and then to a contemporary cult, the Nicolaitans, that we saw a few weeks ago. Now, the likelihood is that, particularly in the issue of Balaam, it was not a new guy named Balaam. It wasn't somebody bringing up Balaam's teaching and saying, let's begin a cult based on what Balaam taught and what Balaam did. The likelihood is there were people that were in or around the church, in or around the Christian community, who were teaching and practicing things in ways consistent with what Balaam did, and so they just gave him the nickname of Balaam, or gave those people the nickname of Balaam. But in short, Balaam was a prophet who had a good track record to the point that a blessing, his people speaking God's blessings to his people, that a neighboring king Balak decided, let's see if we can stop these blessings going to God's people. So he asks Balaam to meet with them, and he offers him money to, rather than bless God's people, but to curse God's people. And Balaam said, show me the money. He took the money, went up, and when he was trying to deliver, he just said, God won't let me do it, which I always thought he probably should have figured on the front end. Uh, But he said, I can't do it. Handed the money back, goes away, says, leave me alone. But Balak won't leave him alone. Balak goes back, calls him back, and Balaam says, look, I can't do this. But, you know, I really want the money. So how about this? Rather than my doing what you're asking me to do, cursing God's people, how about if I take the money and tell you how you can seduce God's people away from faithfulness to God and in their behavior will bring a curse upon them themselves. And Balek said, that was worth my money. So apparently what was taking place here are people who were removing moving God's people from the centrality of the love that is theirs in Jesus Christ. Moving them in another direction, apparently in this way, in licentiousness. Living in a way that is contrary to what God's law says is good for us. The Nicolaitans, we don't know a lot about them. Church tradition says that Nicholas was actually one of the, was a Nicholas that was one of the original deacons found in Acts chapter 6. And at some point, he began distorting the gospel in a way of teaching things such as, well, God will forgive. Or even, it's only a body. See, God's concerned with your soul and with your spirit. But, you know, what you do with your body is just a body. It's the flesh. It's already corrupt and broken. That doesn't matter. It's where your heart is. Some have suggested Nicholas may not have been specifically that particular Nicholas, or even if it was, that it's a play on his name. The nick part taken from the word Nike, or we would pronounce it Nike, the little swoosh on your shoe, means conqueror. And the loss is laos, or people, and so it means conquerors of the people. It could have been just somebody who's power hungry. But either way, both of them created a, a, a temptation to follow their way. And it's important that we recognize them. Because the question is not whether or not we are prone to this, it's how are we prone to this. John Calvin rightly points out to us that our hearts are like little idol factories. And so our, our nature, though we've been redeemed, we continue, even as believers, cranking out little idols. Just picture the Hebrew elf factory. Rather than cranking out little cookies, they're cranking out little idols. And even if you devour some of them and put them, they they never, their shifts never end. They'll continue cranking them out, and those are the things that lead us to potentially be seduced. We need to realize that there is a danger, and Jesus is saying, this is serious business, because we can tell by the intensity of his words. And so we need to uh, detect the, the seriousness or the dangers of being seduced, but we also need then to determine the presence of seduction. Now, if Nicholas was the one the church, history says, church tradition says he was, that he had been a deacon who then became uh, the leader of this cult faction, it just seems to beg a question, at least in my mind, how do you go from somebody who was present at Pentecost, seeing the power of the Spirit poured out, seeing people coming and their lives being changed day after day, that every day scores of people, numbers of people were added to the faith and their lives were changed in a unity that, that existed to being a leader of a pagan cult. The answer is usually seduction. There was something else that he wanted, more than he wanted the relationship with God. It didn't start out that way. See, persecution is pretty easy to determine. If somebody comes and brings and puts a gun to your face, you know there's probably a problem. I have a decision to make right now, and I will consider the consequences of any decision that I make because it's there. It's in your face. You can't miss it seduction doesn't operate that way. Seduction is more like the old illustration of the frog in the kettle. You're probably familiar with it. If you throw a a frog in a boiling kettle, it will hop out. If you put a frog in a tepid pot of water, it'll stay put for a while. If you begin to turn the heat up a little bit, the frog moves from being in tepid, comfortable water to a jacuzzi. Thinks that that's nice. Until being so relaxed, you turn it up more, and the water begins to boil, and you... Can serve it a good French meal. The same thing is true in our lives. When we are faced with something that is a clear confrontation of our faith, many people will be able to stand firm. But in comfort that moves to more comfort, we desire even more comfort, or we desire something, and that just kind of draws us along that we can have a little more of what we have, and we begin to look at that as the primary object of our affection rather than Christ, who is not only the object of our affection, but the one who's promised to provide us everything we need, including ultimate comfort. But seduction works very slowly, and it plays on our particular desires. While we are living in a culture that is not likely to be facing, at least this week, persecution, we live in one that has all sorts of seductions around us. A lot of times the world, we declare it just worldliness. The people in Pergamum, they, they love Jesus, but they also love the world. We would call it worldliness. But I also know that's a term that is so loaded that it causes a lot of confusion. Because I know Christians who, we're supposed to be against worldliness. So whatever the world does, we're going to do the opposite. There's a problem with that theory, though. It minimizes what God has said about the world. And second, it still allows worldliness to dictate our lives. We're in conformity or disconformity with the world rather than being in conformity to the person of Jesus Christ and to what God has said. Something else becomes our standard, whether we become like it or we become against it. Something other than God becomes our standard. And so the idea of just withdrawing from the world entirely and hating the world entirely, and that that's the mark of faithfulness, it's not really the mark of faithfulness. It may seem that way, but it really... If you think about it, it, it doesn't make sense. It also doesn't, isn't, doesn't follow the biblical pattern of what God has said about the world. He created the world, and he created it good. Now, we messed it up, and not only are we experiencing the uh, consequences of a fall and corruption, but the whole world is broken. It continues to bear beauty, but it's also broken, and it's required for us to understand that there's beauty and there's brokenness, and we need to be able to determine which is which. Some of you may know the name of Michael Horton. He's a professor out in California. He's also a prolific writer, and I've had the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with Mike. And I remember reading something that Mike had, had written a few years ago. He was talking about his, the whole confusion of his own life in this particular issue of worldliness and what is not worldliness. And He said that it really became stark or very clear to him that he was confused when he was sitting at church at one point when he was a high school senior church was singing hymns during the service. This particular day, they sang two very familiar hymns, hymns he'd sung many other times, but it never really struck him about the disconnect that these two hymns brought to his whole idea, not only of God, but of God's world and the world that we live in. The first hymn that they sang was, This is My Father's World. The second hymn they, they sang was, This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. He said, It hit me for the first time. If this world is my, this is my father's world, why is it not my home? And he realized that sometimes we emphasize certain things that have certain truths, but we form and we have a disconnect in our own minds about that. And he realized as he began to grow, became one of the uh, better theologians alive today, as he's wrestled with this issue, we live in a beautiful world created by a beautiful God. We broke it. It is broken, but God has promised that he's going to restore it. But in the midst, we need to be able to determine brokenness from beauty. We don't reject the world outright. So just because the world is doing something, we know two things. It's broken, but it also has the potential of restoration and to be made beautiful. And so we relate to the world, not on the basis of what the world offers, but on the basis of how it reflects what God is doing. Worldliness is not an issue of do we enjoy aspects of the world. Worldliness is an embracing of a system of values as the ultimate dictators of our lives. And this world... In this culture, every culture has them, but this world has certain values. And they themselves are not inherently wrong, but when they are put together as a system or when they are used as the ultimate standards, that's when things become distorted. And in our culture in particular, there's a few values that you would recognize that are not themselves wrong, but they meet that category, one of which is power. The one who has the most power, influences everything, gets what they want. Wealth. Some want wealth because it's a means to power. Some want wealth just because they want wealth. Maybe because wealth provides potential for comfort. Beauty. Beauty certainly is something that is God-given. He's given it to this world. He's given it to people. And he's given it to some people more than he's given it to others of us. But he also tells us it is something that is fleeting. And you've seen the sadness of people, Hollywood actors and actresses, who have had beauty and then decide that they're going to try to cling to it and Then they hire somebody to try to possess the beauty. Maybe beauty is still in the eye of the beholder, but most of them look stupid and ugly to me. Uh, they're just thinking they should have just age gracefully in that, and so they, they're, they're trying to cling to something. It becomes the standard, the sexuality that drives our culture is really simply an ex- opportunity to use beauty for power, to control. And one that seems a little odd, but it's become a reality in a culture in our culture. Um, relatively in the past generation or two is fame. Fame used to be something that is attributed to somebody because they were either powerful or they were wealthy or they were beautiful or they had a talent. Now it's become a virtue of its own and people will grasp for it and do foolish things in order that they can have just fame even though there's nothing to it. Again, Nothing wrong with any of those things but when they are working together and that's what's controlling the direction of your life and how you make decisions is that we need to have power so that where nobody else has can control us. Or I need beauty because people will revere me or it will give me power. When those things combine and that's the way that you look at the world, that's what the Bible's talking about, worldliness. He's not talking about the attributes themselves. And so we need to be aware of how those things influence our lives. And again, it's important that we understand that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of how. We mean to not assume that we are immune to it. Jesus is giving a very stern warning for our benefit because we are all susceptible to it. But the beauty of our God and the way that he wins us back, we see as Jesus offers us the solution. Jesus has already said, this is serious business. I'm not going to ignore it. In fact, if you persist in this, there's going to be a problem. I have a sharp two-edged sword that is capable of cutting through anything. There's no heart that is so hard that it is impenetrable. The sword can cut through your heart. And so while he's showing that, here's how his response to us is. We know the severity of it. And if we understand the marriage illustration that he's saying, look, if I'm the groom and you are the bride, you're not going around offering your affections to others. It's not acceptable. I will not have it. With that understanding and that intensity, here's what Jesus says to us and how he responds. We see it in the last verses. Verse 17 He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, again, we've talked about in each week that we cannot conquer, but Jesus has conquered for us. So the one who is trusting in Christ, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except for the one who receives it. Jesus is speaking metaphorically here, and he's saying to the one who is trusting in me, to the one who realizes that I am the hope, I am the way, I am the life. I will give you some manna. Manna represents the nourishment of our souls. Manna represents the word. Manna was bread that was given to the people to provide for them while they were in the wilderness. And yet Jesus also says, I am the bread of life. And we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus says, I will give you my word. I will give you the nourishment that you need, that you desire. I will provide it for you." And he says, I'll give you a white stone. Which reminds us of two things here, both related. One is, in the ancient time, the white stone was an object that jurors would use. When a jury was set for a trial for any type of uh, a case, the jurors would hear the case. They would be given a black stone. They'd be given a white stone. So when it came time for them to offer their vote on the verdict, they would present the black stone if they believed the person to be guilty. They would present the white stone if the person was innocent or acquitted. In this case, Jesus says to the one who returns, the one who stays with me, I'll give you the white stone. You are pardoned. White stone is also used in some of our traditions, different clubs, different groups, fraternity, sorority system. And time comes for bids. They everybody votes, as I understand it. I wasn't invited into one, but that's okay. Um, I, I probably would have been given the black stone. Which have you received the black ball? There's a reason we use. They've been blackballed. That just means one black ball, you're out. You don't get invited into the club. But everyone who has an opportunity to vote to receive somebody into their group. If they receive all white stones, it means you're accepted, you belong, you are one of us. And Jesus says, I will give you the white stone. Not only are you declared and acquitted, but you are accepted, you belong, you belong to me. And that is evident by the fact that he says this white stone will have a new name written on the stone that no one knows except for those who receive it. Many scholars would say that the name that is written upon that stone is the name of Christ, and when you have received Jesus, you bear the name Christian, because you now wear his name because you belong to him. That's the stone that he gives to you. See, our God is so awesome and so great that even though we have flirted around, and even though he has every right to be angry, to be furious, and to penetrate, here's what he says while that threat is above us. He says... But if you are mine, I will show you love. And it is that love that draws us back. It's that love that helps us to see that the promises of the world are foolishness. They will ultimately lead to disaster. And even if they deliver everything they promise, they cannot give what Jesus has given to us. So, folks, we have an opportunity each day. We have an opportunity right now because Jesus has painted before us that we live in a culture We recognize we live in a culture of tremendous seduction. We need to recognize those things that would seduce us, both that are the cultural pressures and that we are predisposed to, and then turn and look and gaze upon the beauty and the love of a God who, despite our guilt, loves us, accepts us, wants us, and paid for us. That's the power to say no to the seduction. That's the hope of the lives that we claim that we want. That's the promise of eternal life. Taste it now. Father, we do give thanks to you. For you've not just given us a list of things that we are to do and to avoid, but you've pointed out our very condition. Common to all, but expressed perhaps more keenly and more specifically in some circumstances than others. We thank you that we have been spared from persecution, and yet we realize that the gospel is flourishing in cultures where the persecution exists. And we find ourselves impotent. Lord, while I do not pray for persecution, I do pray that by your grace you would strengthen us and you would draw our gaze to you, that the freedom that we have we would not use to wander from you, but we would use to glorify your name, that we would be in love with you all the more, because you have blessed us in this way. I pray this with great confidence because this is the promise that you have made. Let us be a people who dwell in the light of your love and promise. I pray this in the name of Christ.